So we're here resurrecting the suppressed history of the Vatican, bringing to light the ideas censored by the technocrat elite, and encouraging you to stand against the deep state banking oligarchy. This is the Looking Glass Forum. So we're back with the Looking Glass Forum. We have an interesting discussion topic tonight. We just have to get into this before we uh, get into too many other things. And it has to do with a little-known operation, a secret operation, that was conducted right at the ending of World War II called Operation Paperclip. There's been a lot of discussion about this particular move by the military-industrial complex, and there's a lot of interesting history surrounding the different background events about what happened. And the information wasn't released for a long time, and it's very politicized. But what you have happen is you have, during the, during the World War II, the, the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, which was the, the intelligence, the secret intelligence apparatus of the military at the time when we went into World War II, the Office of Strategic Services is going to be becoming, through legislation, will turn into the CIA, which will become the Central Intelligence Agency. And it becomes noteworthy to point out that at that point they were becoming a large intelligence operation and they were up against the movements of the Gestapo and the secret services, the intelligence officers of Stalin. And ultimately, as the Third Reich is going to collapse and as the uh, the Allies are advancing and starting to take back Europe and starting to direct their their lines, the military lines into Berlin. At that point, there's going to be a wholesale sinking of the ship, at which point all the rats are going to scuttle and they're going to try to survive. And so you're going to have the the arrest and capture of all important military targets, which most importantly would be military scientists. So you'd have the Soviets and the American intelligence agents working hard to try to locate and to pay off the German and in some instances Italian or the different Nazi war criminals but these particular war criminals were high profile war criminals because they're going to be the scientists who are behind Hitler's uh, V2 rocket so we're talking about rocket powered motors engines and, and everyone's working hard to try to get an atomic bomb at this point and so all these different nuclear physicists, these different high-level engineers and scientists that the Nazi regime were using to make their war machine are going to now become high-value targets. They're going to try to be captured and lured and paid off and bribed to go into the various countries to work for, in some cases, America or in other cases, the Soviet Union. They're, they're working hard to, to basically capture these technological edge and have the advantage over each other. And this is what they're going to call the beginning of the Cold War. And that's how the story is told. But ultimately, what we're going to see revealed by doing this study into the route lines, Operation Paperclip, and you can look it up yourself, is that a lot of these different Gestapo officers and Nazi scientists are double agents. And they're ultimately, many of them are Knights of Malta. So you're going to find out that there were Knights of Malta operating behind the scenes for Stalin. There was Knights of Malta in England and in America and Knights of Malta in Germany. And so these Knights of Malta 
have a certain fraternal order that they're operating in behind the scenes. And we'll come to find out that a lot of these men who are also dealing with the, the Nazi regime, dealing with Hitler and dealing with Stalin and Russia, were Skull and Bones. And the, in Skull and Bones is, is the secret society out of Yale. Many of them are, are going to join Brown Brothers and Harriman Banking and Chase Manhattan Banking. And they're going to be working with Morgan and Morgan Banking, Money, and Rockefeller organizations. And they're going to be the foot soldiers who are going to make sure that and the, the lawyers and the bankers in the background are going to be the Skull and Bonesmen. And what we begin to see is that the idea of Skull and Bones and the idea of the Knights of Malta are interchangeable. And so they're really just front groups operating within front groups. And the Knights of Malta are high-level papal knights, and their organization um, that is operates as a crusader force, a crusader phalanx of military soldiers who are there to operate on, on behalf of their commander and to and their high-level service agents, if you will, there to implement the will of the papacy, ultimately the, the counter-reformation. And we'll see that behind the supposed political excuses and the political reasoning given to create such a terrible war, the diplomats behind the scenes, the different people that were operating within the supposed access and allied armies and the different countries that are operating are really going to be pawns in a large game. And so you're going to see that this large warfare, this the, the puzzle the puzzle pieces of this World War One and World War Two, when it comes, when it's truly fully explained and elucidated, it becomes apparent that it was ultimately a second 30 years war. And it was an extension of the Counter-Reformation in, in order to destroy Germany and to destroy America and to destroy France and, and England. And so ultimately you're going to see that this is going to be the papacy's revenge on countries who were no longer obedient. France used to be a highly uh, Catholic, ch a champion nation for the for Catholicism and for the papacy, a champion of the Roman Romanist cause. And ultimately Germany was, with Martin Luther, was the foundation point of the Reformation, the, the Protestant Reformation. And America itself was an extension of the Protestant Reformation. And so England had their kings who were turning to Protestantism, including Henry Tudor and his daughter Elizabeth I, and uh, other wayward kings, impious kings, who they had the papacy and the Jesuits reserved the right to destroy them because they were no longer obedient to the, the only religion, which is, in, in their mind, the Romanism. So the papacy is going to spring into full effect this huge Second World War and cause the tipping the scales and causing all these Protestant nations to come to war and fight each other because they control the dictators. And once we get behind the dictators and understand what they were doing, you can begin to see what their real motivations were. For instance, Hitler wasn't even a German. People like to say that he was an Austrian and he was actually a German immigrant and had gotten his immigration papers. How he ended up as chancellor is a, is a whole study on that. But anyway, he was ultimately a Roman Catholic and we can show that, and ultimately, his Gestapo and Heimlich Himmler and all them—they were patterning, patterning the, the Gestapo and the SS after the Jesuit order. So it's something we need to also express that that their intent was to create an order that would be absolutely obedient, and that's how they could get such fanatics to to work in Hitler's regime. And they were there to ultimately destroy the vestiges of the Lutheran Church and the Reformation.
So in order to open up our the whole discussion, we're going to really get in here and look at some more work by Peter Lavinda. But he has um, an interesting perspective here on the whole discussion about the route lines and about the um, the mass, the wholesale escape of the Hitler's Third Reich. And this gets very involved because there's some people, as they retrace the history and they start to look into it, they're able to track the Nazis' movements across Europe as they as the Third Reich is collapsing in on itself and the soldiers are even still fighting and the war is still going going on. Um, the the people in the know who know that the, the the military lines are stretched too thin, Auschwitz and the death camps are still churning you know, Russian Jewry, uh, sorry European Jewry into the gas chambers, and killing everyone. But as the the enemy lines, as the uh, the telegrams are coming through, and as the enemy lines are beginning to collapse, and the Russians and the the uh, the Allies, the British and the American forces are starting to punch through in across Europe and Poland and into uh, into Germany the high command of the Third Reich is going to scatter and disappear and basically escape. And they're going to escape all over the place, all over the world, and but especially into South America and into Argentina. This is crucial to, uh, to understand that this is the picture we're, we're, we're beginning to render, we're beginning to vivify the, the imagery of the Nazi high command as they're escaping all across Europe. Even Heinrich Himmler apparently donned a Jesuit cassock, a cassock which is a black Jesuit priest uniform, and clung on to uh, a, some kind of religious book clutched in his hand and his rosary, and he ma- made it across the train stations and made it out of Germany and out of, out of the, uh, the European or the, uh, the Allied lines and was able to escape. So they were desperately looking all over the place. And, as, and we know that the escape happened because the, uh, the OSS or the new, what would be the new CIA were going to scoop up as many of these Nazi scientists as possible. And, um, the interesting part that the Roman papacy, the Roman church plays in all this because it has many locations, many archdioceses, many priests all throughout Europe. So much like the, um, the Lincoln assassination, they were able to pr- provide wholesale support to the Nazi officials and the uh, Nazi SS high command and the Gestapo high command as they're making their escape out of Europe. So let's get into this, this discussion here about the route lines and Operation Paperclip, and we're here with Peter Lavinda. We'll begin a new series on rat line. And Peter, tell them how they can get a copy of rat line. Sure. Um, Barnes & Noble is carrying it in most of their stores, but you can also get it, of course, online at uh, Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com, all the usual places. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you, huh, why was Argentina considered not safe enough? Okay, um, we'll have to backpedal a little bit. Uh, not safe enough for whom? (laughs) Um, the Argentina was considered a pretty safe destination for Nazis in general. Yeah. Um, and that's because the government there, especially under Juan Perón, was very pro-Nazi, pro-fascist, basically. Juan Perón had admired Mussolini's fascists for a long time. Um, there was a lot of money pouring into Argentina from the, the SS, 
just just before the end of the war, and then of course long after the end of the war, um, paying people off and making sure that Argentina would be a safe destination. Also, Juan Perón's brand of Catholicism was a um, uh, a blend of of Catholicism and anti-communism, which made it also an ideal location for Nazis. So you had uh, a, a huge influx of, of war criminals to Argentina specifically, but then to other countries in the region, Bolivia, uh, Paraguay, Chile, Brazil, uh, at the end of the war. Um, people were basically uh, well disposed towards the ideals of Nazism for the most part. They, they, um, they saw the Nazis as being anti-American, of course, and many of the, the people in Latin America shared those sentiments because they had uh, dealt with American colonial type of activities for, for a long time. Uh, starting with the Monroe Doctrine, in which, you know, basically North America said South America was off limits to everybody else. So there was a kind of uh, anti-American sentiment and a pro-fascist sentiment. And the idea that Catholicism could be the bulwark uh, against communism. So all of this made Argentina uh, a very attractive place for Nazis who are now escaping the fall of the Third Reich. However, if you were a very prominent uh, Nazi, if you were one of the most wanted war criminals in the world, Argentina might not have been a safe place for you to go to because uh, a lower level Nazi might have traded the information for their own safety, or they may have traded it for money, or they may have tried to cut a deal with American intelligence or British intelligence or even Soviet intelligence. So uh, in some cases, you might have found yourself in a bit of a sticky wicket when it came to Argentina because it was a two-edged sword. Um, for the most part, the regime was very friendly towards you, uh, and the regime would protect you in as far as they could. But you had to be kind of suspicious of some of your fellow Nazis and some of your fellow war criminals. Were they, were they part of the comrade, you know, uh, uh, set up or not? Were they SS? Uh, the SS was branded as a criminal organization by the Allies. So yeah. if you belonged to the SS, you were automatically a war criminal. So the SS tended to stick together. But what if you were not? SS, but you were still a war criminal. Could you count on the SS to protect you? <laughs> or or was there going to be some kind of quid pro quo there, which you have to buy your freedom or, or somehow ransom it? So I think there was there was a complicated situation, and we tend to look at the at the Nazi uh, underground as monolithic, and, and it wasn't. There were there were personalities. There was Otto Skorzeny. There was Hans Rudel. There were people who were financing this, and you know they were not. Um, a charitable organization, shall we say. They were people who, you know, needed favors in return quite often. So I think it was a complicated place. And I think that if someone as high profile as, let's say, Adolf Hitler were to try to escape to Argentina, would he have been able to stay there for any length of time? Could he rely on the people around him, some of whom had felt betrayed? by Hitler for various reasons, or felt betrayed by the Third Reich in general. Maybe somebody would have traded in, you know, Hitler's identity or Hitler's whereabouts uh, for some, you know, for, for a lot of money or for some protection by one of the, the allied governments or, or or whatever. You know, it's, it's possible, especially if you were lower level and you were looking at maybe a possible prison term mm -hmm. uh, or you were broke and the other Nazis were not coming forward and helping you out. Maybe you were bitter. 
So I think that um, someone like Hitler would have been nervous after a while and not feel that he was really being protected, you know, to the best that he could. Well, there's a skull that the Russians claim is Hitler. How is how how does that happen? Well, see, that's a, that's a bit of a problem for historians because the story of the Hitler skull, I mean, its providence is is uh, very murky because this whole thing was in the hands of Russian uh, intelligence. I mean, it started off with a group called Smersh, um, which was a, uh, a Soviet counterintelligence operation um, within the NKVD, which later became the KGB. Smersh uh, is an acronym. It means death to spies. Mm. So it was a uh, you know one of the Stalin era you know uh, uh, anti intelligence counterintelligence operations and they were the first on the scene in Berlin uh, at the fall of Berlin the Russians of course are the ones who entered Berlin uh, the, the other allies came in a bit later yeah. so the, the Soviets were the first so they were there at the bunker um, and they basically laid claim to whatever they found there and there's a very strange complicated, convoluted story of how the Soviets came across or came into possession of Hitler's body, as well as Eva Braun's body and the bodies of the Goebbels family and, and so on and so forth. The whole story uh, changes constantly uh, between one Russian dossier and the next, and, and we really don't know uh, the truth behind any of this. I mean, the, the the spies, the Russian spies were telling one story to Stalin, and Stalin wasn't buying it, and he told them to go back there and find out. And people were deathly afraid of Stalin. Stalin could order your execution with yeah. the blink of an eye, as he did. Yeah. I mean, thousands of people purged under Stalin, uh, hundreds of thousands. So, you know, people were very frightened. So they would tell Stalin whatever Stalin wanted to hear, basically, yeah. as long as they could give some evidence to prove it. So, they came across some bodies in Berlin, and the story of how they came across it is also very murky. I mean, you had a, a, a Nazi, uh, a, an SS officer who was captured by the Soviets, uh, and he was forced to tell them where Hitler's body was, and he couldn't find it. And then later on, they got other information as to where the bodies might be, and suddenly, miraculously, he finds them in the same place the Soviets say they're supposed to be. The whole thing was stupid. Anyway, so they dig up these, these two bodies of Hitler and Eva, uh, supposedly, and they perform autopsies. I mean, battlefield autopsies. This was not, you know, uh, a CSI-type no. autopsy <laughs> we're, we're doing here. This is, you know, a bunch of Soviet uh, doctors with, you know, a hammer and a saw and, a, you know, and a couple of pairs of scissors or something, and they're trying to perform an autopsy on two bodies that have been partially burned. And they found initially one body that was the dead ringer for Hitler, and it turned out it wasn't Hitler. It was one of Hitler's doubles. Oh. They found a guy called Gustav Weber, who was a Hitler double, who was living peacefully somewhere. They found another double, you know, in a, in a grave, and they thought it was Hitler. The whole thing was a mess. So they finally find this one body, um, and it's partially burned because the idea was the bodies of Hitler and Eva were cremated by the SS in front of the, the bunker in the, in the Reich's Chancellery uh, garden, and they poured petrol, they poured gasoline over the bodies, lit it, lit it and the bodies were partially burned. So they were burned beyond recognition, facially. There was no way of telling from the faces of these two individuals who they were. So they had to rely upon dental records. Now that's another funny story because there were no 
dental records. Right. Uh, the dental records had basically been destroyed. So they found a dentist, or they found a dental assistant, actually. And the dental assistant suddenly draws the dental uh, records of both Hitler and Eva Braun perfectly from memory, right? Oh, oh, oh. It's, it's impossible to ask, right? But they're in Soviet captivity, so they draw dental records which match precisely the dentures that are found in each of these two bodies, in Hitler's and in Eva Braun's body. So now we have invented dentures, a uh, mm -hmm. dental record, matching found dentures. The problem with the dentures is that they didn't fit in the, in the mouths of these corpses. Oh. They were sort of shoved in there kind of loosely. Yeah. Number one. Second problem is the dentist who made these dentures made two sets of each. So one set is accounted for in the, the skulls of these two bodies found in the, in the bunker, in the, in the grave outside the bunker. The other two dentures, we don't know where they are. So there's a whole bunch of mysteries concerning this. Um, and then there's the mystery, of course, about the suicide, but that's another story. So you asked about the skull where, well, evidently that was the skull. Evidently that skull was the Hitler skull they found outside of the Berlin bunker. And that skull has been preserved in a box uh, at KGB archives since the end of the war uh, until a couple of years ago when uh, an American uh, archaeologist, Nick Bellantoni from the state of Connecticut, went over to Moscow to test the skull uh, to see if it's really Hitler's skull. Mm -hmm. Well, he was able to bring a piece of it back. In the first place, he just examined the skull, and the skull was not that of a man of Hitler's age. Um, you, you can tell the age of, of, a, of a body from the, the, the skull, the way the pieces of the skull fuse together. Yes. And uh, his first reaction was, this is a skull of a much younger person. Uh -huh. But then he, he took the pieces back, a piece of it back, and had it tested. Uh -huh. And it turns out that it's the skull of a female. Uh -huh. And it's the skull of a female, I believe, in her 30s. Uh -huh. And it was not Eva Braun. Obviously, it was not Hitler. So the skull the Soviets had been claiming all this time was Hitler's skull could not possibly be Hitler's skull. And so now we're left with this problem that there is no forensic evidence anywhere to prove that Hitler actually died. So they go into a pretty deep detail right here, and it's Peter Lavinda, and he's doing his book called Ratline, Soviet Spies and Nazi Priests. And he goes into great detail at this point, <clears throat> discussing how this whole thing played out and how they actually ended up escaping into Argentina and how very many of the higher-end scientists and engineers and intelligence people were being collected by the Soviets and by the English, and by the, the American intelligence agencies. So the clandestine services are hunting for these men, for the ones that are important, and the rest of them are slipping away. And ultimately, we're going to get into how exactly the Vatican would help out and play a, a, a particular role in this, this flight of these Nazis. And as it turns out, they had to coordinate passports and get travel. And a lot of the, as you get into the rat lines background, in Operation Paperclip, it turns out that a lot of these back channels and these escape routes were already planned out and set up in advance. So it seems to me that it's clear that they knew that they were doing a coordinated deconstruction, a coordinated implosion of the German state. And they had already had their golden parachutes, as it were. They had their, their escape plans already situated, and they were not interested in going down with the ship. But destroying the 
German state was really the goal of the war in the first place. And so I have to get into more of that history and discover more along those lines. And we have some more interesting uh, input to, to, uh, to add to this discussion. And we'll have to go back to Peter Lavinda more to uh, the whole discussion is over an hour. So we're just going to take clips out of it and break it down. And really to get into the, um, the depth of the discussion, we really have to look at a unique detail here. And it's, it, it's a, regarding a man named Reinhard Gellin. And Reinhard Gellin is going to be an individual who's going to pop up in different ways all over this entire discussion as we go forward. So we're not going to really be able to get, get around him. So the Gellin organization, the, the Gellin network, is really going to be a network of Germans and Soviet and British spies who are operating together. And ultimately, when we look under this rock and we start to find out the, the facts of the situation, we're going to discover that Reinhard Gellin was ultimately a Knight of Malta. And these Knights of Malta had a previous loyalty, a previous oath of, of allegiance that they had assigned, that they were prescribed to. And it didn't matter what, what a country or which side or which army they, their, uh, their uniform was. Ultimately, they were traitors to each of their individual countries, and they served a, a purpose that was behind the scenes. They were serving as Knights of Malta and these different langes, these different groups, different languages around the world. And ultimately, they had a single confederation within the, the, uh, the American government, within the German government, within the British government. These countries were, for all intents and purposes, opposing nations and opposing factions. But within these factions was another organization, the Knights of Malta. And this organization operated uniformly throughout the different ranks of the different opposing sides and different opposing armies that, that they were fighting. So Reinhard Gellin is going to be one of the main figures that we're going to understand as having multiple allegiances at this point. So we need to get into this discussion a little bit more. We're going to listen to an interesting um, uh, discussion here. It's called Operation Bernhardt and Operation Bernhardt and the Rat Lines is the discussion. You can look it up and it's going to discuss how the different Nazi scientists and the different uh, SS high command officials who were slated to escape were given all the equipment all the clothing uh, resources they were going to need. And ultimately they were going to get be given Vatican passports. So the Vatican rat line was situated there to help all the rats escape the sinking ship of the German state. And of, of course this was the vengeance of the papacy for the German state having fallen from its previous position. And ultimately the regathering of the European states into what we now understand as the European Union with the German state being the head and having the prominence there and leading the European Union. Right, so again, what we really have here is a tripart operation, Vatican SS and OSS US intelligence to get the Nazis out of uh, Europe and Italy in particular. Now it's worth noting here that Cardinal Montini again goes on to become Pope Paul VI later on, and we're gonna look at uh, the association of Paul VI with many of the, uh, I guess, the successors to some of these same elements we're talking about in future uh, broadcasts in this uh, special series on Vatican politics. Now it's worth noting here again that this rat line served to get many of these Nazis out of Europe and into the service of the U.S. intelligence agencies, one or another, either the counterintelligence corps of the army, the fledgling CIA and its Galen affiliate, or, uh, or Galen wing, really I should say, uh, or any other aspect of U.S. intelligence. And it uh, again, Montini's role with Udall in this is front and center. And it's worth noting here that uh, then Bishop Bishop Montini had was he a bishop or a cardinal here? Uh, bishop. 
<clears throat> at what time? He Monsignor was, Montini. That he was a Monsignor when the thing whole th right. first thing started. He later became an archbishop and then a cardinal. Okay, Monsignor Montini. At this point, uh, my my church denominations are not the, the clearest. Obviously, my understanding of them. Monsignor Montini at this point had already been working for U.S. intelligence for some time. Reading now a short section from a book called OSS. The Secret History of Subtitle, The Secret History of America's First Central Intelligence Agency, authored by R. Harris Smith, published in hardcover by the University of California Press, copyright 1972. Now, in this book, uh, the author Smith describes Monsignor Montini working as a U.S. intelligence agent, specifically in order to provide Vatican intelligence on bombing targets in Japan to the United States. So, even while the... the uh, the Vatican is cooperating with Hitler and Mussolini. They're currying favor with the United States by providing them with uh, aerial intelligence, or with uh, intelligence for their aerial attacks on Japan. And one of the key people involved in this is Monsignor Giovanni, but actually it says here an intense cardinal, Monsignor Giovanni Battista. So he was a cardinal at this point. Uh, reading about this, uh, by the way, it was called the Vessel Project. Reading about Montini's wartime work for U.S. intelligence, and again, remembering that later on, he, when he was instrumental in providing Vatican passports for many top Nazis to leave Italy, many, and uh, many of them wound up working for U.S. intelligence. Smith writes as follows in OSS. The attention of Italian planners at Donovan's headquarters had been diverted to a top-secret priority operation codenamed the Vessel Project that had nothing to do with Italian intelligence. In late 1942, Washington received an incredible proposal from Vatican City, then an independent diplomatic enclave in the center of fascist Rome. A high official of the Papal Secretariat offered to furnish the Americans with first-hand information on strategic bombing targets in Japan, obtained by representatives of the Holy See in Tokyo. OSS accepted with alacrity, and a complex espionage network was born. The intelligence from the Japanese capital was sent to a contact at the Vatican, then relayed to the Irish Embassy in Rome. With the secret approval of Premier de Valera, the information passed by Irish diplomatic pouch to Dublin. There it was collected by Riccardo Mazzarini, an anti-fascist emigre who represented the SI Italian desk in London. That's uh, the British Special Intelligence. Transmitted in special naval code to Washington, the data was then analyzed and compiled at OSS headquarters by an ex-colonel of Mussolini's Air Force, an air attaché at the Italian Embassy in Tokyo before his defection, unquote, to the United States. This circuitous process took only a matter of days and provided Washington with vital Japanese intelligence in the spring of 1943. The Vessel Project was masterminded by two men. The Vatican agent was a thin, intense cardinal, Monsignor Giovanni Battista Montini, later to become Pope Paul VI. His fellow OSS conspirator, Earl Brennan, a veteran of the State Department's consular service and Republican member of the New Hampshire legislature, headed the SI desk in Washington. I guess uh, SI is, is, was not... That's, uh, anyway, that, that is a, a branch of U.S. intelligence here, at, uh, working obviously with OSS. I'm going to have to double-check just what that reference uh, is, too. Anyway, continuing here. Educated in Italy as a boy, Brennan had later returned to Rome to join the American embassy staff during the first years of the fascist regime. Working closely with another young foreign service officer, David Bruce, Brennan befriended the chief of Mussolini's secret service, leaders of the powerful Italian Masonic Order, and we'll be talking about that Italian Masonic Order later in this series, high-ranking fascist officials, and the Duce himself. So again, 
Pope, uh, Pope Paul VI, at that time Cardinal Montini, was actively working for U.S. intelligence during World War II. In light of the U.S. intelligence involvement with the rat line and the fact that many of the people evacuated via the rat line went directly into the work for U.S. intelligence, it's worth speculating the possible role of U.S. intelligence in directly influencing Montini's efforts in that regard. And we're going to talk about uh, one place, at least, where the U.S. Paid a role, played a role, but um, also we're going to introduce one of our key players who is going to be showing up time and time again during these five broadcasts, uh, a man who himself first became affiliated with most of the people um, that he uh, is going to be showing up with later on at the end of World War II and the financing and, and organization of the Rat Line. I just remembered what OSI stands for. That is actually a subdivision of OSS. What that is, it refers to special intelligence. And in fact, the special intelligence division of OSS during World War II, interestingly enough, in Europe, was headed up by William Casey, currently director of the CIA. That's that reference. SI refers to the special intelligence division of the OSS. It's a and branch of OSS. another member of the Knights of Malta. Yep. Uh, in the Knights of Malta, we're going to be talking about uh, a little later in the broadcast. Absolutely. Anyway, back to the subject of yet another one of our main players who's going to come up time and time again, a man by the name of Licio Jelly, first name L-I-C-I-O. Last name G-E-L-L-I. Licio Jelly, who is going to be one of the most key players in the entire uh, inspection of who shot Pope John Paul II and why. He, he could be looked at as the hub of the Mediterranean merry-go-round, perhaps. Absolutely. And uh, Licio Jelly, again, as so many of these people did, first came into, into this strange kind of uh, crossing over area between the Vatican, fascism, and intelligence at the end of World War II. Um, and in the formation of the rat line that we have been talking about. <clears throat> Reading from David Yallop's In God's Name, talking about Licio Jelly and the formation of the uh, repellent individual he grew to be, by the age of 17, he'd already acquired a hatred of communism comparable to King Herod's attitude toward the firstborn. As, me as members of the Italian Black Shirt Division, Jelly and his brother fought alongside Franco's army against the communists in Spain. Of this period in his life, Jelly observes, quote, only I returned alive, unquote. During the early stages of the Second, War, Second World War, Jelly fought in Albania. Subsequently, he obtained the rank of Oberleutnant in the SS in Italy and worked for the Nazis as a, quote, liaison officer. His work involved spying on the partisans and betraying them to his German masters. Some of his early wealth was derived from his presence in the Italian town of Cataro, where during the war the national treasures of Yugoslavia were hidden. A significant proportion of those treasures have never been returned to Yugoslavia, but were stolen by Jelly. Jelly's early devotion to, to a hatred of all things communist lessened in direct proportion to the defeats suffered by the Axis powers as the war progressed. He began to collaborate with the Italian partisans, who were largely communists. Thus, he would locate a partisan hideout, dutifully tell the Germans, then advise the partisans to move before the raid. He continued to play both ends against the middle throughout the remainder of the war, and was one of the last of the fascists to surrender in northern Italy, close to where a young priest, Albino Luciani, had been hiding partisans in Belluno. And Albino Luciani is the man who eventually becomes Pope John Paul I, about whose death um, this book in God's name is written. And we'll be talking about next week, by the way. So they're going to go into an in-depth thing here, and obviously this is Christopher Plumley. I think this is his radio show. It's an older broadcast, so you can go back here, Christopher Plumley, up, and you can go back and check this all out for yourself. And you can—it's a 51-minute video, 
and you, you can look at it and it's going to go into the Reinhard Gellin organization. It goes into uh, Lucio Gelli and it go, it's going to go into the Vatican banking. It's, it's, it gets really in depth, but for, for, for what our purpose is here, we're trying to really just focus in and hearing the rat lines and how the, the escape mechanisms were in place for these Nazi war criminals who were ultimately had just set their, um, their inquisition against the Jews and their Holocaust and burning millions of Jews and, and killing millions of other people by shooting them in the head and just tossing their bodies in a hole and, and just causing a huge political firestorm by invading into Poland for no apparent reason. It's, it's, it's as if you woke up tomorrow and then suddenly we invaded into Canada and into, in, into, into uh, South America, into Mexico, and just rolled our tank straight through and started just creating a geopolitical shitstorm, a, a geopolitical conflagration. I always like to use that word conflagration. And that's exactly what it was. So ultimately, we're going to really go back here and listen to some more of the insight by Peter Lavinda. He has another in-depth interview that he's doing, and it really breaks down what's happening and um, and how involved the Vatican really was in the background here. And ultimately, their their enemies were being destroyed, and their goals were being accomplished, and their vendettas were being satisfied by these different maneuvers and in the background in the state departments in the, in the di- diplomatic corps and in the intelligence agencies the catholic priests and the will of the pope and the jesuits men the jesuit order were operating to make sure that the the armies were destroying correctly the targets that they had in mind so even though we were going to war to save Europe from the radical Third Reich. Ultimately, the Third Reich was established to serve the purpose of creating a war that would destroy Germany. And that was their goal. So as we're moving forward here, let's take a little bit more of the Peter Levinde, his discussion in the whole matter. And now your host, Brent Holland. Welcome one and all. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Thanks for joining us tonight. Settle in, folks. Get comfy. We've got a great show for you tonight. Our guest tonight is Peter Lavenda. And just let me read this a little bit about Peter. We're going to be looking at a Hitler conspiracy that perhaps he did not die, as the history books say, April uh, 30th, 1945, outside his bunker by fire. Peter Lavenda, at the grave of George Anton Pock, is the author of many works on esoteric and political subjects. His most recent work is Tantric Temples, which I have a copy of right here. And uh, I'll tell you an easy way to get all his books, so www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's guest book cover. That'll take you right to a place online where you can order it from the comfort of your own home. Uh, his most recent work, uh, Tantric Temples... Eros and Magic in Java, also published by Ibis Press. Unholy Alliance, a history of Nazi involvement with the occult. If there's time, folks, we will go there without question. He is a member of the American Academy of Religion and a charter member of the Norman Mailer Society. I'd like to welcome Peter Lavenda to the show for the very first time. Thank you, Peter, and thank you for this book, by the way. Not at all. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, sir. Okay, let's jump in right away. What happened outside Hitler's bunker, Berlin, 
November, uh, sorry, um, I'm so used to talking about the Kennedy assassination. I've got November 22nd on my mind. Sure. <laughs> April, uh, April 30th, 1945. What happened outside the bunker? We were led to believe, Peter, uh, not only in the movies, but in the history texts as well, that the bodies uh, were dragged out of the bunker. Hitler had put a cyanide pill in his mouth, bitten down on it, simultaneously blew his head off. Uh, he had poisoned his dog, Blondie. And also, Eva Braun had taken a cyanide pill herself. The bodies were dragged up the stairs, thrown in a pit, gasoline poured over them, and lit on fire. Such is that's not the, the story. Ca- that's a, such is not the case. No, not exactly. The, these, this information was based upon eyewitness testimony given by SS officers who were prisoners of the Russians, the British, and the Americans. There was no forensic evidence to show that Hitler and Eva Braun actually died in the bunker or died at all, for that, for that matter. We are talking about people who had um, motives for lying to the Allies. People who had motives for lying to um, the Russians, for sure. They were being tortured. Uh, there was all sorts of extreme uh, interrogation techniques being used on them. We don't know what the Brits were doing to their Nazis. The Americans had Nazis, and none of the stories matched. None of the eyewitness testimony was consistent. In fact, even with one witness at, telling different stories time and time again, you got no consistent stories. So the story that we have was created by a British intelligence officer working for MI6. He was told, you have three months. You have to prove, you have to prove that Hitler committed suicide, died in the bunker, that he's dead, end of story. This is the mission he was given by British intelligence. They didn't say find out if he was dead, find out how he died. They said, this is your mission. You have to prove that this happened because the Soviets, particularly Stalin, is telling us that we have Hitler in custody or that the Americans have Hitler in custody or that Hitler escaped through Spain and he went to South America. But at any rate, the Allies are protecting uh, Hitler somehow. They have secret knowledge. We have to show the Russians that what what they believe is nonsense. So what was what was to their advantage to prove the fact that Hitler did not die that day? in terms of the Russians, I guess. I, let me rephrase that. I, I just realized I've said it incorrectly. What was to their advantage to prove that Hitler did die that day and did not escape? Um, was it more that they were trying to protect the living Hitler or was it to the fact that they were just trying to discredit the the Soviets, I guess, um, what was emerging as the Soviet bloc? Well, the, the motivation is very interesting, I think, because uh, Stalin believed that the, the other allies, of course, the Russians were our allies up until about that time, the Soviets believed that we were protecting Hitler for our own purposes because to us, communism was going to be the enemy, the post-war enemy of the Western world. Therefore, we were protecting not only Hitler, but it's documented, very well documented, we protected a lot of Nazis. We protected, Josef uh, Mengele was protected, Walter Rauf, Klaus Barbie, Franz Stengel. The list goes on and on and on. Adolf Eichmann escaped. So many Nazis escaped. Why wouldn't we have tried to protect Adolf Hitler if we're protecting virtually everyone else? A handful of Nazis went to Nuremberg. A handful, you know, executed. Some just went, had prison terms. But some of the worst monsters of the Third Reich managed to escape. They did. Why did they let them escape? Um 
again, what was to the advantage of the Allies to have monsters, you say, like a, a Klaus Barbie, a, an Adolf Eichmann, although the Israelis went and got him. Um, I think it was 1962. 1960. 60. 1960, I think. Yeah, yeah I think mm-hmm. you're right, actually. Um, what was to their advantage to let these monsters escape. I mean, they just fought a war against these guys. They'd seen the concentration camps. They'd seen the murders of civilians right across Europe. That's true, but the Al, just like Churchill, saw communism as the greater enemy. Communism was going to be the, a great threat. Uh, we remember General Patton uh, famously said, we were pointing our guns in the wrong direction. I mean, he had hired some of these Nazi criminals to uh, manage the displaced persons camps which had been converted from concentration camps. You see, so he's converting these camps. Uh, he's putting Nazi guards in charge, which is one of the most the worst crimes I could imagine. To have a, a prisoners in concentration camps realize that their new guards are the old SS guards. This is what Patton was doing. He thought that the Germans were uh, great soldiers. They had machismo. They had the warrior spirit. We have to go and fight the communists because that's where the real enemy is. And I think that was a belief that was shared among a lot of people, even in the military high commands of Great Britain, of England, uh, of England and of America. So I think these beliefs made it seem that it's as if we have to protect these guys. They understand about how the Russians work. They have spy networks inside the Soviet Union. We have to protect them, bring them out of Europe, and make sure the Nazis, the, uh, so, the Soviets don't get a hold of them, and don't try to turn those networks against us. So it was a, a great game, essentially, like what was being played in Afghanistan a hundred years ago, uh, was now being played in Europe protect the Nazis because we're fighting the Russians. You're right that 1947 was kind of a pivotal point towards protecting uh, the Nazis because prior to that they were hunting them down but 47 uh, I guess what happened there was uh, the Soviet Union really uh, became the Iron Curtain at that point. That's correct. Um, until 47, even as late as late 19, even as, as early as late 1946, what you had were Americans who were hunting down the Nazis to prosecute them. Suddenly, the same offices that were hunting them to prosecute them were now hunting them to hire them. I mean, the whole about face took place, especially in 47, with the creation of the National Security Act, the Central Intelligence Agency. Suddenly, we realized that we have a new enemy in the world to fight. It's the Soviet Union. And the best people who know about the Soviet Union would be the Nazis who have been fighting them, who had invaded Russia, who understood what was going on there. So, yes, there was a major turnaround at that point, And suddenly, we're protecting Nazis. Folks, our guest tonight, Peter Lavenda, he's written a terrific book called The Rat Line, Soviet Spy. Nazi priests, and we're going to go there right away. The Vatican's uh, part and parcel to how the Soviets escaped as well, and the disappearance of Adolf Hitler. Now, the rat line, folks, wasn't uh, a single source for Nazis to escape on. It wasn't going from A to B. Sometimes they would go from A to Z, and then back, and then uh, to G, and then H, and, and finally get to B, if you sure. will. Um, Part and parcel to that was the Vatican played a major role, which, you know, I've known about this for a while, but every time I read um, how they got in bed with the Nazis, the Vatican, it just uh, boggles my mind um, uh, because I, I guess I've held the church in such high esteem. Uh, for so many other things and all of a sudden they come along and they get in bed with the the slime of humanity can we talk a little bit about uh, how even the pope signed the concordiat with um the third reich in the 30s 1932 well, 
Sure. Again, we have to realize that uh, the Nazis and the church had a few goals in common. One of them was to fight communism. It's hard for us to believe uh, people of my generation understand it, but younger people may not believe that communism was considered to be a major cultural, political, economic enemy. Uh, worse than what we consider of terrorism or Islamic uh, fundamentalism today. Communism works because they had a huge base, the Soviet Union and China and to a certain extent Cuba. So we have developing nations with uh, tremendous missile power, huge armies, and they are, as far as we're concerned, out to get us. So it was much more important to cut deals with the Nazis to fight the Soviet Union than anything else. The church saw that as their goal. Uh, Hitler was born a Catholic. Himmler was born a Catholic. So much of the Nazi high command was Catholic, it was like a, 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 a club of lapsed Catholics. You know, so they had sort of cultural ties back to the Vatican. They they had these relationships. They understood each other. They all hated the communists. To the church, communism was atheism. It was godless. The Nazis were basically pagan, but there was a strong element of old-style German Christianity among a lot of the Nazis could work together. So you have Eugenio Pacelli, who was a cardinal at with the Nazis, with the Nazi government. And what the Concordat did was it, uh, the church basically told the Germans that they would not interfere in Germany with the German Catholic Church there. Back to the Vatican, they, they had these relationships. They understood each other. They all hated the communists. To the church, communism was atheism. It was godless. The Nazis were basically pagan. But there was a strong element of old-style German Christianity among a lot of the Nazis could work together. So you have Eugenio Pacelli, who was a cardinal at that time, who signed the Concordat with the Nazis, with the Nazi government. And what the Concordat did was it, uh, the church basically told the Germans that they would not interfere in Germany with the German Catholic Church there, which essentially signed over the German faith the Catholic faith to the Germans and said, we're not going to protect you. We're not going to interfere. As long as you don't interfere in Vatican City, we won't interfere uh, in Nazi Germany. That was step one. Pacelli would then become Pope Paul VI a bit later on. But before this happened, uh, Pacelli was uh, involved in, uh, I mean, Pacelli became Pius XII, excuse me. That's okay. Uh, his I, was, I was going to correct him, but that's I was, fine. Right. right. Pacelli, beca Pacelli became Pius XII. Uh, Cardinal Montini would become Paul VI, and Montini was running a part of the rat line after the war. So you had uh, one pope who was playing footsie with the Nazis. We're not really sure of his motivations. Historians come out and they try to defend the pope. Uh, some others are, are extremely harsh where the pope is concerned, where Pius XII is concerned. But we do know for certain that Pius XII was much more obvious in his hatred and opposition to communism than he ever was to Nazi Germany. He was very outspoken where communism was concerned. He was very muted in his response to the Nazis. That might have been for survival of the church. He might have felt much more secure in the Vatican shouting against Russia than he was shouting against Germany next door. I don't know the reasons, the motivations. It's very hard to tell. So that's a really good step into this arena that we're going to get into here. And we're going to have to really go to a deeper level in our understanding of what happened after the, the collapse of World War II. It seemed like the armies were basing their guns on one another, but ultimately their commanders and their the plan and the strategy of the ultramontane orders of knights and the <clears throat> Knights of Malta directed 
from the Vatican were interested in wearing out and destroying these countries with this war. And ultimately, it was a senseless conflict. And many lives were wasted and lost on this attempt to fight back and beat back dictatorship. So ultimately, you're going to have Mussolini, and you're going to have Stalin, and you're going to have Hitler, and you're going to have Franco. And all these Catholic men are, are really pushing the dictatorship in their country to destroy the countries of, with popular governments. So ultimately, France is going to be punished. Germany is going to be absolutely destroyed and marked with the, the smear of Nazism. And the America is going to have, and Britain are going to have to get involved and spend precious blood and treasure to try to fight back this attempt to regather the old Holy Roman Empire together with Germany at, at its center. And that's what you see today. Ultimately, ultimately, you have Germany in the center of the European Union, and it's a recombination of the old Holy Roman Empire again. And of course, if you look and see the euros, the European money, it has a picture of the Pope's face on it. So you can see that ultimately their goal was accomplished in, in their efforts to reunite the different and unique countries of the European continent back into under one order, under the uh, European common market. So in order to kind of bring this all into the light and really give it more of a sincere effort here to kind of expose the whole topic itself, we have to really look at, um, in order to really verify the historicity and the concreteness of the facts of this whole discussion, we really need to take a look at an inter interesting discussion here. And you can find it online. It's called The Vatican Rat Line, Primetime Live with Sam Donaldson. <clears throat> I think it's ABC. At this point, Sam Donaldson is a much younger man in 1994, but he's going to delve into this whole discussion and really do a kind of groundbreaking news piece. And um, the footage is really good. And the whole news story itself is, is really good, so you should check it out. And we're going to just do an audio uh, clip here and take an excerpt from it, and it's going to go into the whole discussion. They're going to really look at the different um, people who have the records. They're going to go down to Argentina. They're going to go to Germany. They're going to really break down the, the concrete facts of the story itself and uncover what the intelligence agencies were up to back in the 1940s and how they sought to build their own power base up using these Nazi officials and how they worked with the Catholic Church there in the Vatican to get the different passports that they needed to make sure that all the Nazi high command could actually escape safely across Europe. So let's listen to Sam Donaldson. And so now we're going to bring a, like a level of credibility to this whole discussion. And even though it's not popular and a lot of people don't know about it, it's important that you understand how these different clandestine organizations were operating together and we're going to take a closer look at the different Nazi officials and who they were and their connections with the Vatican and with the Knights of Malta and that's kind of where we're going with this so we'll build that out as we're moving forward in these episodes we're going to have to reveal to you a level of history that perhaps it was not available to you before but it's important that you understand what's at stake because the past is a good indicator of what the future will hold. But what of the others who served Hitler and his murderous regime? Some were brought to trial at Nuremberg and elsewhere. But not all. Many of them just disappeared. As it turns out, it was a disappearance well planned. Argentina, South America. It was a country off the beaten path in the mid-1940s with its own burgeoning Nazi movement. And with a former army colonel named Juan Perón in charge, 
a country ready to play a pivotal role in providing a safe haven for the Nazis. How many? We do not know the size of the problem. Are we talking hundreds? Are we talking thousands? I'm afraid I may be in the thousands. Last December, Argentine Foreign Minister Guido de Tella took a giant step toward exposing the truth when he signed this decree, opening the secret files of government agencies, including the federal police and the foreign ministry. Now, after all these years, the world can finally see what Argentina did. The visas were handed out just wholesale, with no questions asked. There was a bit of that, yes. So the government knew that it was giving visas, allowing Nazi war criminals to come to Argentina. Some people in government certainly did. These are the archives of Argentine immigration. Everyone who registered into the country is listed here. After the war, when the Nazis began flooding in, some were so bold as to use their own names. Here's an entry from June of 1948. Schroeder, Eric O'Neill, says he was an engineer. Eric Schroeder was the Gestapo chief of Portugal. Some, of course, didn't use their own names. Here's an entry from July of 1950. Clement Ricardo says he was a technician. That's Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi who supervised the extermination of the Jews. And this one from June of 1949 at the very bottom of the page, here's the name, Gregor Helmut, who says he was a mechanic. Who was this mechanic? Let's see. Gregor lived in various Buenos Aires suburbs. For a time, he had a jungle hideaway nearby. But as the newly opened federal police records show, he felt safe enough after a few years to re-register under his real name, Jose Mengele, Dr. Joseph Mengele. He was no mechanic. At Auschwitz, they called him the Angel of Death. He helped select those who would live and die. He tortured and murdered children, particularly twins, with his medical experiments. Mengele is believed to have died in 1979 in Brazil. But we now have proof for the first time that the Argentine authorities knew about his activities in their country and protected him. There you can see his activities here in the country, how he lived with such impunity. When the archives were opened, Dr. Beatrice Gurevich, research director for Jewish organizations in Buenos Aires, set to work gathering data on Nazi war criminals like Mengele. This is a document from the federal police. Those are Mengele's fingerprints? These are Mengele's fingerprints. They had them on file? Yes, of course. And the argument for not extradicting him was that Argentine didn't extradite people for political crimes. Mengele? Political crimes? So it is said in the document. Well, Dr. Mengele was one of the great butchers of all time. That was the argument. Why are you so astonished about this? This is absence of moral responsibility. But this absence of moral responsibility was not Argentina's alone. Nazi war criminals needed help to escape Europe. They got it here in Rome, beginning with two highly unlikely sources, the intelligence services of Britain and the United States. They saved tens of thousands of Nazis in order to use them against the Soviets. Peter Tompkins should know. He was a wartime spy working undercover in Rome for the American OSS, predecessor of the CIA. Are you telling me that the OSS helped 
Nazis escaped justice at the end of, of the war? Oh, absolutely. They, they created a, a clandestine army of ex-Nazis using people like Klaus Barbie, for instance, who said, oh, that's a good Nazi, that's a good Nazi. That, I know him, I know him, I know him. But if it sounds incredible that the U.S. would use Klaus Barbie, later convicted in France as the Butcher of Léon, because he and his fellow Nazis were thought to possess experience that could help against the Soviets. Consider who else played a major role in the Nazis' escape route. None other than the Vatican. The Vatican then had an entire system of monasteries and convents. Uh, we call it the Rat Line. That was the American code word for the The Rat Line. The Rat Line. John Loftus is a former Nazi hunter for the U.S. Justice Department who spent years investigating this elaborate escape route known as the Rat Line. He says Pope Pius XII was pro-German because he saw the Nazis as a bulwark against the communists, whose ideology the Pope viewed as a mortal threat to the church. So beginning in 1945, the Pope allowed one of his bishops to produce phony ID for fugitive Nazis. Bishop Alois Hudov, with the blessing of some British and U.S. government officials, set up shop in this nondescript rectory just outside the Vatican. My estimate is we sent some 60,000 fugitive Nazi war criminals to Argentina after World War II, during the five-year period. But from his vantage point overlooking St. Peter's Basilica, the historian who studied that period for the Vatican, Father Robert Graham... So, <clears throat> we're not even going to listen to Father Graham come out and tell his ridiculous lies. That's what he does at this point. You need to go and watch Sam Donaldson's interview with uh, with these regarding this whole subject matter yourself. And what it comes down to is that really guiding you along this pathway towards a clearer understanding of what the whole point of World War II was all about. Once they had agents and provocateurs and controllers within the different various opposing governments... You had some nations trying to remain nations. You had communist countries trying to convert all the other countries to communism through war, or through starvation, or through whatever means they had. That's what Stalin was all about. And so ultimately you have this, this scientifically calculated destruction of the German state in order to get from the, uh, the Second Reich, which was ultimately um, the way that the Lutheran and Protestant country was able to rise to such prominence and in, in scientific advancement and technological advancement in the first place. So Hitler would come in being a Catholic and use these huge apparatuses of the state in order to create an enormous war machine to immediately go to war against Poland and to invade France and do all these other provocative things that really didn't make any sense. And ultimately, we had to, uh, England and America and other countries had to go in and try to attack into Europe and try to save Europe from being destroyed by the machinations of these dictators. And ultimately, we find out that Stalin and Hitler, even though they appeared to be enemies, were really working together. So Stalin was building some of these death camps that ultimately, when Hitler would attack into Poland and take over the territory, Hitler would take control of these death camps that were built by Stalin and he would use, Hitler would use those death camps built by Stalin to pack in dissidents and gypsies and Jews and anyone that they really wanted to clear out of the, of the um, neo-Catholic, newly rising Jesuit state of, German, uh, of, of Germany. And ultimately, Germany was split with the, uh, the Berlin Wall for quite some time. And it shows you how angry 
the papacy was with Germany, and they were uh, seizing upon the vengeance of, of hundreds of years, of centuries-old vendetta against Germany, and destroying it in the way that they did, in such a historic and horrific way. So in order really to get into this discussion further, we're just kind of speeding through this material. And like I said, these are just clips. These are just excerpts from the, uh, the, the, the material themselves. Maybe I'll try to post some of the, the YouTube links in the, uh, the, 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 the description area of the podcast area, the video. So you can go ahead and just look some of that stuff up. But we need to go ahead and do another little interesting interview here. And this is going to be a discussion. It's regarding Pope Pius Twelfth and the final solution implemented by Himmler, Heinrich Himmler. And it's going to be a discussion by uh, Eric John Phelps, who is a prolific author on these matters. And he's just talking to Victor Perillo. So Victor Perillo and Eric John Phelps have a discussion regarding this whole thing. And even though I find Eric John Phelps to be a provocative fellow at the same time he has his hands in all these different these different topics so we have to really understand where he's coming from and the knowledge that he he wields and that knowledge is coming from somewhere and it's conspicuous knowledge um, a wide ranging knowledge that informs us and like we like eric john phelps always says he lives very near um a jesuit novitiate and uh, one one time he described the fact that he was passing by the cemetery there and spotted uh, the Jesuit general doing a funeral service over one of the graves there. So Eric John Phelps is a very conspicuous fellow indeed, but his knowledge is very vast, so we still have to rely on it regardless. So let's go ahead and give it a listen. I was uh, sent an email by Mr. Perillo, American Army major in World War II named Warren Lambert. Warren Lambert was a judge at Nuremberg, playwright in Hollywood, and he has put together what is called the Lambert Chronicles, which you will find utterly fascinating, and this is the topic of, for which we have this special broadcast today. So, Brother Walt, welcome to the broadcast. Glad to be here, Brother. Thank you for inviting me. And, Victor, are you with us now? No, Victor will be calling in, and uh, he should be calling in shortly. So meantime, uh, what I'll do is just a brief introduction. I was uh, sent an email by Mr. Perillo, American Army major in World War II named Warren Lambert. Warren Lambert was a judge at Nuremberg. Warren Lambert spoke both German and English. And so the Jesuits at Nuremberg, in the person of Jesuit Edmund Walsh, and one of his uh, agents at a Georgetown University that was completely in charge of all the translation work there at Nuremberg, so they could censor out everything that had to do with Pope Pius Twelfth and the Jesuit involvement in the SS and the Eurasian Jewish Holocaust, this Mr. Warren Lambert had his own private notes and diary. And it was recently discovered by his grandson in an attic. And uh, these notes fully expose Pius XII as the major Jew-baiter and hater of the, the impetus behind the Eurasian Jewish Holocaust. And of course, Pius XII's immediate master, Jesuit Superior General Vladimir Lerachowski. But uh, Walt, you had called and talked with Victor. 
Victor, you're here. Maybe it's, I don't know where it's from, but... Should I try on uh, another number, or... Um... No, this number's fine. But if you're listening to the radio in the background... No, I'm not. Turn it down. No, I'm okay. not. Okay. All right, well, hopefully it'll get resolved. I don't know if it's on your end, Walt, or whatever, but... All right. Okay, well, Victor, welcome to the broadcast. And uh, I was giving a brief introduction how you sent me an email concerning uh, Warren Lambert. So why don't you just... Uh, Take over and tell us about Warren Lambert and his grandson that you met and these, uh, this tremendous diary of your hands. About uh, nine, ten years ago, I had the opportunity to meet uh, uh, Andy Woodowis, who was the grandson of uh, Warren Lambert, Major Warren Lambert. And Major Warren Lambert was one of the eight judges elected by uh, and assigned by after the, during the Holocaust, after the Holocaust. And uh, for years, uh, the, the uh, collection and so forth of his notes, his diaries, and uh, his personal records uh, was kept at uh, Hazel Lambert's home in, in Michigan. And uh, unbeknownst to, uh, to the grandson, until one day he, he discovered it, uh, he had the presence of mind to... Um, take the uh, collection and get it approved and get it authorized and, and uh, he you know could have done uh, incredible things with it it's estimated to be worth over five million dollars and he took it and and um, donated it to the Zeller Holocaust Museum this is uh, truly uh, the grandson of a great man and certainly the blood runs in the family what is fascinating about the collection and about the man is that he took meticulous notes uh, during the trials, uh, notes that clearly specifically indicate the presence of the uh, gas chambers and so forth, and that nobody could deny because these were the testimonies given by uh, the, the, the SS officers when they were on trial. He also encouraged the survivors uh, at the camps to write their own testimonies and documents, and all of this was in the collection. Uh, in addition, there are hundreds of pages of handwritten notes that he took at the infinitesimal time that the trial was going on, and in his handwriting. So it's so amazing that it's kept <laughs> all these years, and it was a question of providence for, um, not a question, but it was providence that uh, Mr. Woodowis came across this collection and brought it forward to us, and uh, and he he did it diligently, and, and he's been patient with it to, to get it out. I met him and transferred all the notes into a theatrical movie, a, a, a play for the stage, a docudrama, and a book, as well as a trailer and so forth. Now, now you're, a, you're a Hollywood playwright, correct? Well, I was. My background is all in the theater from New York, and I've done nothing else but show business. I was an agent for 20 years. I was Gary Coleman's agent. The young boy I was, uh, died last year as a child actor from different strokes. Uh, uh, I know the power of drama, and and um, and you know we could write books and so forth. And when you see the characters uh, live on stage or on film and uh, in a te television movie of the week and you see them talking and we bring to life three different storylines uh, and I talk about 
what this man was at the time he lived and what was going on in that era was that there were three storylines. There was not only was Warren Lambert, a man who came from, he's every man. He worked his way up to, to the, the knowledge he had. He was not a lawyer or a judge. He worked, he studied the Uniform Code of Military Justice while he was in the service. He was fluent in German, and he was outspoken, and he took notes from the beginning. His wife is just as much a hero because she, she was with Hazel Lambert, was with him throughout the whole trials. She, uh, through the years, gave Andy notes on, on um, their life together and what was going on in Germany. She was an amazing character, so that the, the the notes that I put together for this piece, this project, uh, come from all the sources that were in the collection, as well as as from the the conversations that Andy had with her with his grandmother, and uh, and put it all together. And and you know the term, uh, all the dots connect, and they they always do. So what, what is it that's fascinating about this story? Is it just another Holocaust story, or is it about the life and times that this man lived in to be outspoken and to take notes so that we, 60 years later, can put the dots together and take a look at what, he's, what, what he did and what he recorded? So there's three storylines going on. I talk about the people that did not come to the rescue of the Jews that could have, and uh, the Vatican, the Jesuits won, and the and the the other storyline is what happened at the State Department. And this is not a question of was there anti-Semitism in the State Department, or was there anti-Semitism uh, with Pacelli, the Pope, Pius XII. Uh, there was. And when the audience leaves this theater, whether they see it in the play or they see it in a the movie theater, or they watch the docudrama. It hopefully will inspire all of us to say, you know, when we see evil, we have to speak out, and we have to say it, and we saw what Lambert did, and we saw that the voice of, of truth can hardly be heard above a whisper, but the sound of evil is broadcast on the loudspeakers of, of uh, Satan. You know, I mean, every time somebody talks and speaks out, about what the reason why these, Hitler was aided and abetted and the people that did it, it's silence. It's a very difficult project to get produced. And of the course. reason is... <laughs> and the Jesuits are, as you know, the Jesuits are running Hollywood and that's one of their great secrets. They don't want the world to know that they were the masterminds behind the Eurasian Jewish Holocaust. The, the, there's, no, there's no question about it. And, and uh, there's, there's no question about that. I will tell you that uh, in lieu of what you said about... Uh, and I'm out here and I'm, I'm you know, facing that battle all the time. Uh, it, it is amazing the people that read it for the first time who are not the executives at the film companies, but the, the, in, in a second position and are very excited, and then three or four days later call Barrow in their voice. <laughs> we, we, no, I, I understand that completely, as I mentioned know, we, before, we, when but, I was uh, talking with uh, a Japanese correspondent about 
the Jesuits being in charge of detonating the uh, atomic bombs on the ground, atomic detonations, but the detonations took place on the ground by the Jesuits overseen by Pedro Rupe. Uh, she completely, she was happy about it, wanted to interview me, and all of a sudden, nope. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, there's so, these, yeah, so that's one way we know we're on target. <laughs> we're on target, and, and you know what? I think we may have discussed this, but you know, why is it that when somebody tells the truth, uh, you see, we are labeled as uh, a, a, you know, uh, people not too bright, not cases. Um, uh, you know, conspiracy theories, theories. See, the, the truth, the truth is the truth. You know, it, it is what it is. The truth is the truth. It never disguises itself as not. It never disguises. It is. It is. It is there. And and the difference is is that when you tell the truth, you you have so many different. You know, I did a lot of research on this, uh, and, and as you do. And, and uh, you know, in your work, but it is amazing when you're That's and, true. and you come true. away. And, and another example of this of persecuting these authors is Robert Stinnett. Robert Stinnett wrote the great work of Day of Deceit. Uh, the truth about FDR and Pearl Harbor, and this was a brilliant man, is a brilliant man, who was there at Pearl Harbor at the time, and he proved that the Office of Naval Intelligence helped engineer and organize the Japanese invasion of Pearl Harbor, and uh, which ultimately resulted in the justification for the U.S. entering World War II. So he was shouted down, and we can expect this. But I have some questions, uh, Victor, with regard to your manuscript. Now, you've put together a play called the Lambert Chronicles. Right. And uh, is it in production now, or no. how's, how are you coming with it? I've finished the script and the, the book and the movie script. I finished the theater script, the movie script, and the book. And it's all the story of, of, uh, of Warren Lambert. And uh, these days, you know, you, you, it's, it's not the old Hollywood where you could sit down with producers that knew how to read scripts. You know, today, if it's not, if the project is not put together and they're, they're not attachments to it, they don't read it. If it's not formatted according to uh, certain uh, software, you know, they don't read it. Uh, and um, I've been in this industry a long time when I sat at NBC and sold seven movies of the week with people that understood what you were talking about. Uh, the days of, um, you know, Norman Lear and David Susskind from the years of past and the 50s are gone. However, uh, I believe that if the story is told in a little theater in, in, uh, in uh, anywhere, in, in Michigan, in Philadelphia, that it will get such uh, press that it's so outrageously controversial. And controversy, as you know, you know, gets attention and gets people talking. So uh, mm -hmm. I, I can't sit here when people say to me, you know, Vic, you're, you're writing about an issue that you're talking about the Jesuits. You're talking about these people that are very powerful. Are you, are you fearful? Mm -hmm. The nature of this script is about a man that was not fearful. And it was about the fact that we were complicit and we were complacent in the 30s and the 40s when all of this was going on in, in, in Germany. We, we were uh, fearful. And nobody, nobody t uh, spoke about this. The New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Chicago newspapers, 
any time they were reporting that the any news that was coming out of Germany about the the, the uh, concentration camps, it was buried on page fifty and sixty. You know, uh, and largely. Right. Well, the, the reason the reason for that is is that the Council on Foreign Relations was and is today in control of the press. Yeah. And the Council on Foreign Relations is the trusted third party of the Archbishop of New York. And so during the 30s, at least as of 1939, uh, Francis Spellman was the Archbishop of New York and, well, he ran. and is rightly titled, rightly titled as the American Pope at work, the American Pope written in 1988. So what I'd like to see is this. I would like to see your script put into a movie. This is the beginning of a three-part play, a three-part movie series that will make the producer hundreds of millions of dollars in conjunction with telling the truth around the world. Isn't that wonderful? This will, fir this will first expose the papacy, the Jesuit order, and the SS having carried out the Eurasian Jewish Holocaust. And by the way, I find it intriguing that the Latin uh, phrase, sedis sec sectorium, the Holy See, is the Latin phrase that the SS used on their lapels. Yeah, isn't that amazing? They're wearing the uniform. Fantastic. That was a wonderful point you brought out in your Yeah, that's in the script. Where is the source for that, brother? What's that? Where is the source of the SS? Well, I got it from I got it from several sources. This this one came from, I believe it's in, I don't know the exact book I got it out of. But there were some, inter I don't have it here in front of me, I'm sorry to tell you that, but because I had like seven, eight books that I read it from. And it was confirmed because I looked up the, when I did research on this uh, story, uh, I, I, I had several dictionaries I was working out of. And one was the, one of the original Latin translations of studies of, of that term, Sacorum. So a lot of this I came on my own. You know, and then it was verified in in one or two books that I read. And I'm sorry, I, I do have source material, but I don't have that that one available. But uh, well, as I, I might add, hmm. that remember the SS was born out of the Freikorps. The Freikorps was born out of Bamberg. Bamberg was never bombed in World War II, and the Archbishop of Bamberg was was overseen by the Jesuits Church of St. Michael, I believe, St. Martin, Church of St. Martin, St. there Martin, in right. Bamberg. So the SS was born out of Bamberg, out of the Archbishop von Hauck, who was there in Bamberg. So there's no doubt that the SS was patterned after the Jesuit order. It used Jesuit uh, symbology, and of course, Skull and Bones is one of their symbols, too. Right, but right. As, as I was saying, this is the first part in a three-part movie. The first part shows that the Jesuits were behind the Eurasian Jewish Holocaust. Hitler, as well as Stalin, working together, overseen and financed by FDR and Churchill and the whole Anglo-American power structure. Secondly, after this, we're going to show how Cardinal Spellman was the kingpin in the Vatican rat lines coming into the U.S., bringing in approximately 20,000 Nazis after the war. 
It's, when we show this, then, we will also bring you up to the Kennedy assassination because uh, Francis Cardinal Spellman oversaw the entire assassination using his Knights of Malta, like uh, Henry Robinson Luce and John McCone and Carthur DeLoach, third in command of the FBI. I have it all in my book. And then once we show that Cardinal Spellman was behind the assassination of Kennedy, his own Roman Catholic Knight of Columbus, then this will morph into 9-11 and show that uh, Edward Cardinal Egan was the overseer of 9-11 using his Knight of Malta, George J. Tennant, head of the CIA and on the National Security Agency. It's the same organization. It never changes. And this play would be, I believe, the first of a series of three that would shake and rock the world. Well, I think within the context of, of, of the, the, the script the way it is, you know, I, I certainly have to pay homage to to to, to Warren Lambert and and to the story that the, and to his grandson and uh, in telling the story. Don't forget, there the, he's the gentleman that came to me to, to 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 write this. So certainly we have to focus there. I I agree with you on everything you said. Uh, I never saw this to be a one one part uh, series. I think that the story alone on Spellman. And on on uh, the death of Kennedy, it, I, I wouldn't. I, I would take that separate, and oh, yes. that's that the story in of itself. That's a that's a three act. That, that's yeah. a three act play, and give it the the integrity that it needs. I'm not, I'm not saying that I wouldn't, you know, mention it in here, because I, I, look. But, we, but you could mention Spellman there because you're oh no, he's, in, he's in here. He's he's he's, he's, he's the, the scenes I have with him within the script is has has him going to uh, to Rome to to you know one time he left with the gold that they were they were talking they made reference to the fact that he would leave the the Vatican with big boxes heavy boxes that he would have to have people uh, carry out you know uh, you know he he was introduced to um, and and encouraged to 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 be the, uh, the 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 American Pope in a way by Mother Pascolina at the beginning, but then she lost uh, all faith in him later on when she found out you know what his what his character was. Uh, what, what is great, Eric? About well, well, Mother Pascalina was involved in, uh, in in lots of the shenanigans with Pius the Twelfth, and when he died, they kicked her out of the Vatican. Well, they kicked her out of the Vatican. He has a long, long time. They they uh, the, the, the the French cardinal Tisserman, who was who. Uh, mm -hmm. Who was in our uh, our script uh, mm -hmm. took on the Pope many times. You, you know, Eric, this is the first time anybody's ever gone backstage <laughs> into the halls of the Vatican during the time of the Holocaust. Yes, see the yes. way these people spoke. Amen. Well, Victor, we have to take a break here, okay. but we'll be right back after station identification here at Liberty Radio Live. Biblical Truth and History and Prophecy with my advisor, Walt Williams, and also with my special guest, Victor Perillo, here on Liberty Radio Live. With Eric John Faust, Biblical Truth and History and Prophecy, back with my advisor, Walt Williams. And Walt, just feel free to question or chime in whenever you want to. And I'm with my special guest today, Victor Perillo, who is a playwright and has written the Lambert Chronicles, uh, depicting the life of Warren Lambert, who was a great American hero who told the truth about what happened at Nuremberg. Okay, please. Uh, Victor, I'd like to ask you, are you aware of Joseph Kennedy uh, silencing 
um, the producers, the movie magnates in, in uh, Hollywood, uh, cautioning them not to speak out against Adolf Hitler uh, before World War II, our entry into World War II. I, uh, I'm aware of it. I never did any research on it uh, when I was researching this this project. He was the one of the three men who caused the stock market crash in, in 29, mm -hmm. and he ran Hollywood. He mm -hmm. basically financed and guided whatever went on there mm -hmm. and restricted uh, and encouraged only uh, information uh, that would provoke the American people uh, into right-wing fascism, which is what they're doing even today. Uh, mm -hmm. It hasn't changed. That's interesting because um, this brings them, this leads right into what I wanted to talk with uh, Victor about, and those are certain personages of the place. To begin with, we have Cardinal Spellman, which is infamous. Who is infamous? Right. But Cardinal Spellman was advised by and overseen by Edmund Walsh, and we cannot overestimate the influence and power of this singular American Jesuit at Georgetown University in Washington. Jesuit Edmund Walsh was at the Treaty of Versailles, making sure the Germans were slam-dunked, and so enraging them, blaming putting the whole war guilt on them, that it guaranteed war in 20 years. Walsh was there. The other thing is, Edmund Walsh was also in Moscow from 1922 to 24, uh, who was the former negotiator between the Vatican and the Bolsheviks. I cover this extensively in my book. Walsh was there for approximately two years. And there, in 1922, he appointed Joseph Stalin to be secretary of the Communist Party, which he remained so until his death in 1953, or his poison, <coughs> I should say. So Walsh was intricately involved in the Bolshevik Revolution, intricately involved in the uh, Treaty of Versailles, and intricately involved with FDR because as soon as FDR was quote-unquote elected president, one of the first things he was, was recognize the USSR, and he did it in the White House, and sitting right next to him was Jesuit Edmund Walsh. So Edmund Walsh is a key player in this, and he is a personal friend of Robert Graham and also Robert Lebeer. Robert Lebeer, this Jesuit Robert Lebeer, was a personal confessor of Pius XII of Pacelli, and Robert Graham was also intimately involved with Lebeer, and these two Jesuits, in conjunction with two other Jesuits, censored all of the Third Reich history, the war history that is in the Vatican and has placed it out of reach, I think, until uh, 2050, something like that. But these four Jesuits, two of them, Robert Lebeer and Robert Graham, censored this history. And our friend, Warren Lambert, has done much to overturn this terrible censorship. Well, now you... you, 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 you. You're fighting the cause, and is exactly what I'm saying is because Warren Lambert uh, spoke out. Uh, his wife spoke out. Uh, he took the notes. There's no denying the notes. Uh, the the roles in this story of uh, Tisserand and Pascalina, you see the list there, these were all real people. They didn't come from my imagination. And, okay. and, 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 and by the way, as we mentioned, Sumner Wells was a member of the CFR, uh, along with Cordell Hall, CFR. Yeah, Cordell Hall, and uh, and Robert Reams. 
But here's the um, the issue here is that we make so much reference when we talk about Holocaust films and Holocaust, and you you mentioned Hollywood here. I don't believe that this this, and I know it's not going to be produced out of any producer out of here. It's going to be a foreign producer or somebody in Canada or New York, and somebody that that has the guts that Warren had, and um, you know to speak out at the time that if anybody even said anything negative about the vicar of Christ on earth, you know they would be stoned, uh, and, and certainly you wouldn't say anything against the government, and and people talked in whispers back then, you know, and uh, the slang word for the Jews, you know, was used on the street all the time, you know. So you're right, the press was silenced by Spelman. You mean Kike? Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. And, and, uh, and he, yeah, it's true. Hey. You know, it, in fact, then, you know, people were were open about, so there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of people pontificating here and saying, you know, how sorry they were for everything. And, and then under their breath, they were cheering uh, Hitler on. But Hitler had friends, you know. He had he had aides. He had aides in powerful liturgical places. He had them in the government, you know. And they all were were sitting cheering. And that's what's so great about this about this story and this script is that we have one man, one man who asked questions. He, he wasn't the only man back then. I mean, there were uh, uh, others that that spoke out. But we have one man. So when we see his story. And, and we, 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 at the end, we say, well, well Vic, you know, in his notes, they, they kept saying, you know, he never said anything. He never took on the Pope. He never did that. I said, look, I'm talking about the time in which he lived. I have dramatic license as a writer to write about the time in which he lived where people would be scared to death to take notes and write things, you know. And, uh, and he did it. And he did it. And he exposed the most vicious organization in the world, a group, what I don't know what you what you could call them, but he exposed the Jesuits, he exposed them. He doesn't beat up on the church, he beats up on the individuals in the church. And and we're telling three stories here. But, so he does write of the Jesuits. Well, well he writes he writes, he makes reference, you know, it wasn't just him that I got the information from. Uh, you know, his wife, uh, Hazel was one of the very first if, if, if people with the go to the jail was a bitch of Buchenwald. Oh yes, I remember her. And and uh, and she confronted her. And you know we had uh, William, the attorney William Denson, who wrote, wrote a book as well about his. He, he was the lawyer, American lawyer that that tried uh, everything. And when she got freed, he just gave up. He got so pregnant in in. Uh, and some American senators protected her. She eventually killed herself in, in a prison in Germany, but they got her back there. But when you hear about the ritualistic activities that went on in the concentration camps, that that the Blessed Mary statue was outside of the the, 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 the concentration camps, and when Eisenhower came, he ordered them all removed. Is that right? And the Blessed Virgin Mary was outside the concentration yeah, camps? Yeah, outside the door. Was, was, was Dachau one of them? No, Dachau wasn't. I believe it was Nuremberg. They find, incidentally, they did find relics, uh, religious relics, that the German SS officers allowed, in one case, I know this for the American prisoners, to hold on to. And in our script, 
when the SS officers are being questioned at the trial of them, and you know who, to whom you 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 you, uh, you have reverence to, and they said, of course, it was Heil Hitler. They were screaming that out all the time, and then he makes reference when also the Church, the Church of Rome. So, you know, it, it's it is in there and indicated there, but this story is has so many complexities to it. You know, and you're right, it can't be told in one hour length film, you know, it would have to be, if it were on HBO, it would have to be a series. But it's going to take a lot of guts on the part of a producer. Uh, to well, you tell that producer, whoever he is, that Walt and I would be happy to help him. Well, you know, we're... we're, we're and, and, the, and the other thing is, I want to mention some of these personages that you yeah. bring out in your play. Number one, you mentioned Myron Taylor. Yes. Myron Taylor was a knight of Malta, a multi-millionaire, and he was also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He was FDR's secret ambassador to Rome when it was illegal to be legally ambassador until that arch-criminal and traitor Ronald Reagan formally recognized the sovereign state of Vatican City in 1984 and made it legit to send an ambassador to Rome. But you have Myron Taylor, you have Sumner Wells. Right. Sumner Wells wrote a book on world government called uh, Union Now, I believe. Right. And it was all about world government, but he never mentions the Pope. No. Just world government. No. Yeah. Oh, no. Right. Reform Rabbi to his own Jewish people. Mm. It's very, it's very Chamish has much to say about him in his, his great works, and also Ben Hecht, yeah. Hollywood Jewish Hollywood playwright, in his book Perfidy, talks about the treason of Stephen Weiss. How Stephen Weiss could have done much more to help to get the European Jews out of Europe and into the U.S., but he refused to do it and sent them to their deaths. Another book uh, on this topic is called The Scared and the Doomed by Nuremberger, and he also mentions Rabbi Stephen Weiss. Yes. So you have mentioned some well, very, I've some, very key I've had some mixed feelings, uh, uh, mixed reports on him from some, uh, as you say, some people that have read this and said, you know, that he, uh, there's only one mention of him, there's one scene with him, but this was before when he did make an attempt to meet with uh, Wells and Hall, he had he had one conversation with them, but I think what you're talking about happened after that, and the and the he didn't turn turn coat on everybody. He probably did. Uh, what I you know they have an out they, yeah, they have an outward policy. The outward policy is to want to say we we want to save the Jews like Rabbi Weiss did, but his inward policy is really not to because there was a secret deal. If the Jewish leaders would aid and abet the Nazis Holocaust, they would be given the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem or Israel. And so that's why we see the Masonic Jewish Labor Zionists working in conjunction with the Nazis during World War II, because they would be the leaders of the Pope's revived Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem. So we're going to leave the discussion right there. They go on and talk some more for about an hour, and it's an interesting discussion. And ultimately, he was talking about Ronald Reagan would re reassign a diplomatic agent to go to Rome and reopen diplomatic ties to Rome because for the entire period of time between the second Lincoln administration and Ronald Reagan, the United States refused to recognize the diplomatic agent and the dip diplomatic corps of the Holy See. 
So in other words, the United States would not receive an ambassador from Rome until after Ronald Reagan. So for the entire time, uh, the, the America stopped allowing, uh, you know, allowing there to be an ambassador or diplomatic communication between the Vatican and the United States because of the, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and Rome's direct responsibility. And so from that point on, they cut off after we had to get John Surratt back from the Zouave Guard, who, were, who was um, guarding the Pope, and we had to arrest him and bring him back to the United States. Then they cut off diplomatic ties to the Vatican. And they were not, like, like he was pointing out, they were not restored again until Ronald Reagan. So this is just one more episode with Looking Glass Forum, and we hope that you have a better perspective on the history. And I hope that these episodes help to give you a better understanding of what's happening historically. And it seems that it's interesting that Ford's Theater, too, was uh, used to uh, be there in Washington for quite a long time. But in the place of Ford's Theater, where it used to stand, uh, under the Bush administration, they put up the museum for John Paul, Pope John Paul II. So Pope John Paul II, his museum stands there in the place where the Ford, the uh, Ford uh, Theater, which was also a museum, stood for a long time. So people could go back and see the place where Abraham Lincoln was shot, and it's no longer there. So it's interesting to know that the the prohibition against having diplomatic relations with the Vatican went on for 100 years, from the 1880s to the 1980s. And... Um, all the subsequent administrations before Reagan seemed to remember the issues they had with the Vatican having been involved in a conspiracy to kill Abraham Lincoln. But after Reagan, after the 80s, I guess it was no longer really relevant information. They had brought John Paul II back into play, and he was a very popular pope. And he brought he made the the popular the world populace endeared once again to the Vatican to the papacy, and they made him to where he was hugging babies and touching the crowd. And, and it was quite different with previous popes like Pope Pius XII, who was absolutely imperial in his kind of tyrannous way of ordering the governments of the world to obey his wishes. And he was called the uh, Hitler's Pope. And if we have time, we'll go into that a little bit. John Cornwall's book, Hitler's Pope, discusses the involvement, the direct involvement of Pope Pius XII in the crimes of the Third Reich. And that's really what we're talking about here today. And in order to get into the discussion even more, we have a really interesting um, author here that we can bring, bring up. And I could really only find a good lecture for him on C-SPAN. And this is Gerard Steinecker. And he was the author of The Nazis on the Run, How Hitler's Henchmen Fled Justice. And they have a few speakers up before him talking about how he was uh, a historian and an archivist and, how, and, and you know, talking about his degrees and how he's coming out of the research institutes that are associated with Harvard. And he's going to go into great detail here, to and, and this is more of the academic level. Previously, we had uh, Eric John Phelps, who's more perhaps conspiratorially minded and the way he looks at these events. But this, this fellow is just strictly academic and he really can't get away from the, the whole picture here because in his book, he's going to ultimately discuss the role that the red cross played and the red cross ultimately turns out. And after world war two to be a very controversial 
office. Obviously, it's, it has religious connotations because it's the Red Cross. And it was a symbol for medicine or for medics, for med evacuation. So you'd have the Red Cross. You're not supposed to bomb them because ultimately they're serving the, the administration efforts to uh, take care of the troops and get them off the battlefield. And, and that would be for... Uh, Presumably both sides of the line. So you would have you know, medics that were going to be attending to um, Russians who were shot and, and or, or German tanker you know, tank sergeants who were blown up or American um, paratroopers who were parachuting in who had gotten half killed. So these these Red Cross um, institutes were Red, Red Cross organizations were really supposed to be neutral and ultimately we find out later on that they were integral in these the Knights of Malta and other organizations operating behind the lines and and going in and out of the different countries and as far as going in and out of Moscow and Berlin and Washington DC men like uh, Edmund Walsh the, the Jesuit would be the kind of man who would be brought in and out of these different areas to discuss the, the future treaties and to discuss the, the movements that they were conspiring to bring about a certain end in the war, a certain outcome that they were looking to do. And ultimately, we find out that destroying the Jews, the European Jews, was part of that outcome. And so, despite the fact that we had our men and our tanks in the most dangerous situation trying to shoot and kill each other and bomb each other with planes, they were using that chaos to even the score and to further their ultramontane counter-reformation strategy in wanting to destroy the Lutheran um, Protestants and the French Protestants there in Germany and France. And that's exactly what they did. So we're going to discuss more here with this fellow here in his book, Gerald Steinecker. And you can look him up. He's a fascinating individual. And we're going to listen to him discuss how the Vatican was involved in making sure that the chosen men, I guess into the, even into the tens of thousands, so it seems like it was it was a, an open invitation to any of the people in the rights, the right, the um, the SS, and in the Gestapo and the Hitler's Third Reich, high-level Nazi officials were escorted safely out of the the dangerous area that they had created for everyone else in Germany. Um, having the Bolshevik army and the the Yankee army running its tanks throughout the place and they were safely fleeted away probably by using like we said the Vatican passports and Red Cross organization assets in order to help them get, a, get escape all over the world so it was immoral and disgusting and the machinations of the Jesuit order and uh, that becomes plain once we start to look at the history itself. See, this topic is very much still alive. And for many years, we didn't really know how these people got out uh, from Europe and how they escaped justice. And the explanation was, after 95, for decades, a mythical one. I'm sure you heard about the Odessa organization. Odessa stands short for Organization of Former SS Members. Of former SS members, Organisation der ehemaligen SS Angehörigen. And 
The Odessa story is basically based on books, writings by the famous Nazi hunter from Vienna, Simon Wiesenthal. Simon Wiesenthal wrote in his books uh, that thanks to this Odessa organization, perpetrators, war criminals could escape justice after 1945. And for him, this was an organization who was kind of almighty, who had unlimited resources, of course in Swiss banks, uh, who had very influential uh, people in politics and everywhere. So according to Simon Wiesenthal, it was the Odessa organization who enabled Eichmann, Mengele and many others to escape justice after the war. Simon Wiesenthal worked closely with a British writer, uh, Frederick Forsyth, and Frederick Forsyth's novel, The Odessa File, became famous, as you probably all know. Based on the novel, a film was made, very successful, with we all know. Based on the novel, a film was made, very successful, with famous uh, people, actors, like Maximilian Schell, fellow Austrian, by the way, <laughs> and the music was composed by Andrew Lloyd Webber, so it was really a, a, you know, a bestseller, and the movie was all over the place. And since then, popular imagination was dominated by the Odessa. Whenever you were talking about the escape of perpetrators, of Eichmann and many other well-known uh, uh, perpetrators, you would immediately talk about the Odessa. But the Odessa was mostly fiction. An organization like the Odessa, almighty, with unlimited resources and um, uh, responsible kind of worldwide responsible for the escape of these perpetrators, never did exist. It's basically fiction. It's a mythical story. It has nothing to do with the facts. The reality was much more complex. Simon Wiesenthal, why did he do it? There are a couple of reasons for that. One reason was certainly he wanted to keep this topic alive. In the 1950s, in the 1960s, especially in Austria, but uh, yeah, basically in the whole Western world and in the East the same, people were not interested anymore in these so-called old stories. Uh, it was the time of the Cold War, and Simon Wiesenthal was p uh, reminding people in Austria and elsewhere that there are still perpetrators out there who were not brought to justice, who made it to South America and to other destinations and still live there. And he used this popular imagination for his own uh, uh, goals and to his own, uh, you know, uh, interests. But anyway. Only since the end of the end of the Cold War, basically uh, after 1989, things started to change. We moved away from fiction, from this model of the Odessa, from the Odessa organization, to history writing. And why after 89? Uh, the explanation is quite simple. It was the end of the Cold War. And there were two reasons why suddenly research on this particular topic was possible. The first reason was a political reason. The layer of protection dropped away for Nazi war criminals still alive and in hiding. And in the 1990s, there were a couple of war crimes trials. For example, in Italy, 
very prominent ones like the trial against Erich Briebke, who was responsible for war crimes in Rome in March 1944 for executing 335 Italians, uh, Italian partisans, military and Jews. He lived in Argentina all those years under his real name and was extradited only in the 1990s to Italy and then persecuted. By the way, he's still very much alive. He's under house arrest in Rome. Uh, and um, so the, the John Damiano case is also a very good example for this, that in the 1990s, the things started to change and these people were brought to justice. There was no political protection anymore. The Cold War was not there anymore. So justice departments began to investigate again and to find these old files in some uh, old archives. The other thing, maybe more important, even, even uh, archives opened. opened. Suddenly, um, there were a commission of historians who are kind of dealing with this past, not uh, you know, very important was the Commission of Historians in Argentina. They opened the archives there, the Swiss archives, the Red Cross archives, very important for my research actually, uh, archives uh, in many other countries. And these archives enabled us to look a little bit deeper what happened after 45, what happened to these people, and how some of these people were protected by governments and intelligence agencies. So, as a consequence, more and more uh, structures came to light and we started to understand how these people got away from justice after 1945. And again, this was one of the very few areas who were not very well researched until the 1990s. Again, until the 1990s, you still had to deal with the Odessa. So whenever I talk, still to this very day, whenever I talk to people about my research, they say, I, I, I know what you're writing. You're writing about Odessa. I said, no, I'm not. And of course, then I have to explain them. It's a fictional story, but it really sticked with the people. And still nowadays, you have to write against the Odessa myth, basically. So let me talk about my findings. How did it really work? How did war criminals, perpetrators of the Holocaust, SS members and Nazis actually got away, got out of Europe? One of the first things I learned, being an archivist in northern Italy, that most of these people got out through Italy. Italy basically was the Nazi escape hatch, hatch for most of these perpetrators, for most of these war criminals and Nazis who got out of Europe after 1945, Italy was the way out. And you may ask, why Italy? Well, a couple of reasons for that. One reason is, for people in Central Europe, in Southern Germany, in Austria, Italy is the closest way, especially the Italian seaboard of Genoa. From Genoa, you had the, you know, the ships going overseas, and it was easy to reach this area. One other reason is, in Italy, there was no Allied military government anymore. Ending in December '45, the Allied kind of, uh, you know, stopped the Allied military government, and the Italians were in charge again. So once these perpetrators, Nazis and fascists from all over Europe, made it to Italy, made it over the Brenner border into Italy, they kind of were safe, they kind of were protected. 
the border area of South Tyrol. Um, it's a little bit, you know, see it here, played a particular role. Günther mentioned it, talked about Woodrow Wilson, and uh, this border area was and is still mostly German speaking, and the people there, of course, were very German friendly. So, German speaking refugees or people on the run there, German background, they were not handed over to the Italian authorities. They were hidden by the people there. And South Tyrol really became the perfect hideout for these Nazis on the run. Italy was the logical way to get there. South Tyrol was the first stopover. And South Tyrol was one of the, basically the only region, German speaking, without Allied control after the war. So it was a perfect location for acquiring a new identity and to get new identity papers. The situation in South Tyrol was, uh, and in Italy in general, was uh, also unique because there were many refugees in Europe. Millions of people were on the move after 1945. Survivors of the Holocaust, slave laborers, uh, prisoners of war, all kinds of people. And many of these people wanted to get to Italy in order to get to the seaports and in order to leave Europe and to start a new and a better life. Not just the perpetrators, not just the Nazis, and not just the fascists, but also, for example, the victims. The victims the survivors of the Holocaust. And Simon Wiesenthal describes it well in, in one quote. He writes about the strange situation in Italy where perpetrators and victims actually met after the war. Both groups trying to get out of Europe and to start a new life. And there is a very good quote by Simon Wiesenthal, and I show you this quote. He writes, I know a small inn near Merano where every now and then illegal Nazi transports and illegal Jewish transports spent the night under the same roof without knowing about each other. The Jews were hidden on the second floor and instructed not to steer, and the Nazis on the ground floor were urgently warned not to let themselves be seen outside the establishment. I'm not sure uh, where this location, or where this hotel, where this place exactly is. It doesn't really matter. What he describes, he describes it very well. The situation, the very unique situation in Italy, when you have all these refugees there, perpetrators and victims meeting, uh, sometimes using the same routes, the same smugglers, the same hiding places, the same structures in order to get out of Europe. And also sometimes using the same ways in getting new travel documents, sometimes under real, sometimes under false names, in order to leave Europe. And Italy was the best place and the easiest way to do so, to get out of it. Um, once you're in Italy, you had basically only one problem. You needed travel documents in order to travel overseas. Most of these refugees from all over Europe didn't have passports, of course. Sometimes they could hardly save their own lives and they didn't have documents whatsoever. So they would ask the International Committee of the Red Cross to issue them travel documents. And that's where the International Red Cross comes into place. This was especially true for ethnic Germans, so-called Volksdeutsche who were expelled from Central Eastern Europe. Hundreds of thousands of them were in Italy. They were hoping to get out from Italy to South America and, and elsewhere. 
And the International Refugee Organization, set up by the Allies, declared itself not responsible for ethnic Germans. The International Refugee Organization were saying, well, we are responsible for the victims of the war and the victims of the Nazi uh, regime, but not for the ethnic Germans. So the International Red Cross, out of humanitarian uh, need, uh, would kind of jump in and help out and issue ethnic Germans travel documents from the International Red Cross. The problem was, <laughs> there was a problem that the International Red Cross had not much previous experience with issuing these travel documents as a passport authority, kind of. They had no way in screening these people, in double-checking what the background really is, if this is the correct name, the date of birth, the citizenship, whatsoever. And this turned out to be a problem. Um, forgot something. <laughs> Happens. Thanks for the slide. The South Tyrol situation. Let me go back a little bit in Italy. Um, this is a very good picture that illustrates the situation in South Tyrol at the end of the Second World War. And I think it's a very good picture also for the museum here, for the World War II Museum. Because I'm sure all of you will recognize the person uh, on your left. This is an American GI, right? Clearly from the uniform. We are in Bolzano in Northern Italy, in South Tyrol. It is the delegation of the International Red Cross. These two people, of course, guarding this delegation of the International Red Cross. And it's two weeks after the end of the Second World War, in May 1945. There is a GI, but who is the young man on, on the other side, next to him? Is it an American soldier? Probably not. No. It's a young German soldier, but it's not just a German Wehrmacht soldier. Well, you cannot see it because... The, the light is too strong here, but on his cap, he has a skull, the young. So he's a young SS man. So you have this situation at the end of the war, two weeks after the end of the war in northern Italy, that the uh, American GI and the German SS soldier are guarding together, <laughs> jointly together, the Red Cross delegation, northern Italy. And reporters of the Stars and Stripes, they came to northern Italy, and they were completely surprised, and they didn't know what's, what's going on here. And they were writing an article about this, about the scenes they saw. This is just one photo to illustrate it a little bit. And the title was, Did we win the war or not? In Bolzano, in northern Italy, one couldn't say. <laughs> so it's a very good description of the situation in northern Italy in May 1945. And of course, it has to do with the Operation Sunrise, with the uh, German surrender in northern Italy, the special secret surrender of the German Wehrmacht and SS forces in northern Italy, and the deal made between OSS forces, the American wartime secret service, and these uh, SS and Wehrmacht forces in Italy. So very unique situation not in Italy, but it even more illustrates the situation was very unique, perfect for people who had a certain past. So now you're in South Tyrol, you're safe, you're in Italy, you need travel documents. And you would of course ask the International Red Cross uh, 
for these travel documents. For the travel document, you kind of had to fulfill one condition. The condition was you had to be stateless. But of course, these things were not double-checked. You just get to, go to the Red Cross and stating, saying, I'm stateless, I'm an ethnic German from somewhere, and I have no papers, and, uh, you know, I want to travel overseas, and please uh, give me one of these travel documents. Also, a certain Ricardo Clement did. I'm not sure if you can actually read the document, probably not, it's uh, uh, too bright here. But I will tell you what it says, it's an application for a Red Cross document, for one of these travel documents from the International Red Cross, for Clement Ricardo, born in Bolzano, who wants to go to Argentina, and who is a stateless ethnic German, Volksdeutscher from South Tyrol, according to this document. And uh, uh, the Red Cross issues him one of these travel documents. Maybe you cannot read the name and the date of birth and all this information, but can you see the photo attached to the document? Do you see the photo, more or less? Well, maybe you have seen the photo of Adolf Eichmann before. This is Adolf Eichmann applying for one of these travel documents of the International Red Cross under the name of Ricardo Clement from South Tyrol. So while he was in Italy on the way to the seaport, to Genoa, he was applying for this Red Cross document and this Red Cross document was issued to him. Um, in Italy, there was a close cooperation between the International Committee of the Red Cross and Catholic institutions, especially between the Vatican Commission for Refugees. Also, the Catholic, Catholic Church realized we have to do something for these refugees in Italy, especially the people who have Catholic background. And this Vatican Commission for Refugees was set up in 1944, sorry, 1944, and as I said, had a close relationship with the delegations of the International Red Cross in Italy, in Rome, in Genoa. If you look who were the people who were in charge, especially of these national subcommittees of the Vatican Commission for Refugees, then you get a better idea that it was a perfect place for these perpetrators to ask for help there. The head of the German-Austrian section of the Vatican Commission for Refugees in Rome was a bishop by the name of Alois Hudal. You have his photo right here. He was someone who had very close ties with the National Socialist Party. He was an admirer of Hitler. He always considered himself as a bridge builder between the Nazis and the Catholic Church. In 1937, he published his book here, The Grundlagen des Nationalsozialismus, The Basic Ideas of National Socialism as a Catholic Bishop. Yeah, just want to underline that. And he dedicated his book to Adolf Hitler. Uh, of course, uh, it was very helpful to have such a man as the head of the German-Austrian section of the Vatican Commission for Refugees especially if people like Adolf Eichmann and Mengele would knock at his door in Rome after 45. And how this close cooperation between the Vatican Commission for Refugees and the Red Cross worked, I want to show you in, in a very simple example, just to illustrate it. Here you have 
a letter of recommendation from the Vatican Commission for Refugees, the letterhead of the Vatican, and it's a very simple piece of paper, very simple letter, just saying, well, addressed to the International Committee of the Red Cross in Rome in this case, uh, asking the Red Cross, please, could you um, give Mr. Stangl Powell, who is stateless and who wants to travel to Argentina, a Red Cross travel document. He has no travel documents anymore. He lost everything. Please issue him a travel document. And the Red Cross, of course, a few days later, this Paul Stangl would go to the International Red Cross delegation in Rome with this letter of reference on the Vatican and tell the Red Cross delegation, well, my name is Stangl Baul, I was born in this, in this place, and I'm stateless, and I'm Catholic, of course, and I want to go to Argentina. And as proof, as only proof of my identity and my background, here is this letter of reference from the Vatican. And the Red Cross, of course, the people who work for the Red Cross uh, would believe that, and without any further screening or question, no questions asked, they would just copy this information given on this letter of reference and hand out, issue a travel document for these people. So Gerald Steinecker is going to go all into depth on this, and this is July 21st, 2011 on C-SPAN. You can look it up and you can watch the rest of the video yourself. I might attach it to this if I have time, this podcast. But it goes into depth here. He's going to show maps, passports, tri travel documents, all, all original documentation in his book. And he's going to really just kind of blow this thing wide open. And it's obvious that the Nazis and the Vatican collaborated together. And part of their effort was to continue the the doctrine of the Inquisition and destroy all the the heretics and destroy all the Jews there in Europe and to ultimately get back to a place where they could destroy the old order of things and destroy the old Reich, you know, the Second Reich, which ultimately was a Protestant Reich. So the Third Reich would be this Jesuit destruction of the whole entire uh, European continent and they were going to punish ultimately France, Poland, America, England and had them all really engage in this internecine conflict that devastated all of them. And that, that's the kind of asymmetrical kind of warfare plan that you can get from the Vatican in their effort to really destroy all the, and submit all the nations of the world to the temporal power of the Pope there in the Vatican, something we discussed recently. So what you can see here, is what we're exposing when it comes to the Red Cross. It's really obvious to my eyes, but I'll explain it. Um, the Red Cross is a symbol. The, the Red Cross was the symbol on the shields of the Templar Knights. And ultimately, that kind of symbol you can find when you recognize that the Bauer family changed their name to Rothschild, which in German means Red Shield, and became the Vatican bankers, and they became the holders of the Vatican treasuries these Rothschilds, and they made this red, this red Shield name famous. So everyone talks about, in the conspiracy circles, about the Rothschilds, and the uh, the Bauer family really took on this second identity um, and this Rothschild name. So what you're seeing ultimately in this, the, the Red Cross, is the extension of the, the Knights of Malta. And if you go back and look, the Hospitaller Knights, they were the Order of the Hospitallers, they were founded at the time of the Templars also, 
and they also would wear a red shield, and they were also setting up their hospital tents, and they were taking care of the pilgrims who were coming into the Holy Land to make pilgrimage, and who would oftentimes be attacked by the, the Muslim, the Saracens, the Mohammedans in the area. And um, the hospital knights were tending to and, 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 and taking care of these rich uh, pilgrims in and out of Jerusalem, and they were defending the Holy Land for the Pope. So the hospital knights were going to set up hospitals, and their order still exists today in the form of the Knights of St. John of Jerusalem and the Knights of Malta. And the hospital or campaign was ultimately a Red Cross. And, and so you can see how the Red Cross organizations were an extension of the papal knighthoods and their power and trying to be neutral in the war between the allied and the Axis powers as they fought each other. And ultimately, it was through these Vatican lines and in these Red Cross organizations that they were able to operate their conspiracy to control the war back and forth. And their Knights of Malta were operating on both sides of the enemy lines between the Nazis and the Americans, these orders. And so you can see that if you look in the the, the, uh, the Scottish Rite Freemasonry and the York Rite Freemasons, if you look up their orders and descend up, you can see that there's the order of the Rosy Cross. And that's the Red Cross. And that, that goes back to the tradition of the Rosicrucians. The Rosicrucian symbol was a Red Cross, the Rosy Cross. And so the, the Red Cross symbol itself is highly suspicious and it's highly occult. And so it shouldn't surprise you that, that behind their supposed pretensions as doctors and medics and just a neutral guy carrying a mat to take the, the wounded off the battlefield, behind those, in, in those planes, the Red Cross planes, they were not to be shot down according to the, uh, the laws of war and the... Um, Geneva Convention would make it sacrosanct for it so that no one would attack a Red Cross position. So you can see that it's obviously the best position for the, the orders of the Pope to operate behind. We would be remiss in completing the whole story if we didn't point out that Mario Bergoglio is uh, the current Pope, and he belongs to the Jesuit order, and he was an archbishop there in the Archdiocese of Argentina for the last 40 years. So it's hard to believe that he had no idea. In fact, it's quite likely and quite certain that he knew exactly that the German Nazi high command was hiding out in his country for the last 70 years. And it's likely that he participated in that secret. And in fact, he is up on charges of uh, against humanity and participating in child trafficking, sex trafficking, and other war crimes when they were doing battle there in Argentina. And you'll have to get into some of that yourself, but apparently since he's arisen from the the state of a cardinal to the, uh, the papacy, he's no longer able to be charged or held accountable for his crimes. So at that, with that, we'll just leave it for the next episode.